I don't know about you, but there are times when someone asks me a simple question and I have to think a lot longer and harder than I should to give an answer. For example, there are times when someone will ask me on a Monday, how was your weekend? And I have to stop and think, how was my weekend? What did I do this weekend? Why is it so hard for me to remember the last 48 hours of my life? Sometimes it's hard for us to remember the the day-to-day mundane details of our lives. At the same time, all of us can look back on our lives and recall significant events that shaped us or had an impact on us. Some of these are good. Some of these are bad. But whether they are good things or bad things, we usually can remember them with a greater level of detail than we can most other times in our lives. I know one of these, for me, was when I proposed to my wife. And that was be February 14th, 2004, in Vancouver, B.C. We drove up that day to Vancouver, B.C., but some of the things I had planned we had to cancel because we got stuck at the border. It took unusually long to get through the border crossing. But then we got up there, did some shopping on Robson Street, went to dinner, went to a concert, and then went to Stanley Park in Vancouver, B.C., where I was able to propose. I remember once the time came, she was catching on as to what was happening, and she became very nervous about this whole thing, and so she grabs onto me and is hugging me really tightly, and I had to kind of peel her off of me so that I could propose. It's like, okay, get back here so I can actually propose, and it's a lot of fun. It's something we think about and and laugh about, and it's these details that we can remember about some of these significant events in our lives. And of course, after she said, absolutely, when I proposed, we were eager to go home and to tell this good news to our friends and family. In our passage this morning, we are going to read about one of the most significant events in human history, and we are given details about this event that will help us understand it better. And the effect this event had on witnesses was that they wanted to go and tell others. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, and our passage this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, which means Christmas has come early. You're welcome. What we will see is that in the birth of Jesus, God displayed his wisdom and power in bringing glory to his name. I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. I encourage you to follow along. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. In our passage, we see the wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God, and the glory of God. First, we see the wisdom of God. The focus in Luke's gospel shifts from the birth of John the Baptist at the end of chapter 1 to the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And Luke kind of gives us a Google Maps experience. Imagine looking at Google Maps from a zoomed-out perspective of North America, and then you zoom into the United States, and then you zoom in some more to Washington, and then you zoom in to Snohomish until you zoom in, and you're looking right at the roof of this building. Well, the birth narrative of Jesus begins at a high level, and then zooms in, zooms in some more, and then zooms in even more until finally we find ourselves looking in a room that was used to provide shelter for animals in a relatively small and obscure town. And it was a little over 2,000 years ago in this very tiny pocket of the earth that one of the most extraordinary events in human history took place. Namely, the God of the universe entered the world as a newborn child. Friends, there is one God who exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we refer to this as the doctrine of the Trinity, And it was the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who, while fully God, added to himself a human nature and became man, coming to earth as a baby. And this is what Luke records for us. The birth narrative, however, begins with Caesar Augustus, zooming out and giving us a big picture of what was taking place in the world. Caesar Augustus was born with the name Gaius Octavius on September 19th in the year 63 BC. He was the grandson of Julius Caesar's sister, Julia. But when Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, his will named Octavius his heir and adopted son. Thirteen years of chaos followed Julius Caesar's death until Octavius defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra in 31 BC. After this, Octavius emerged as the sole ruler of Rome. He then reorganized the Roman government and was credited with restoring the republic, yet he maintained supremacy for himself and his followers. 
He became the first emperor and was honored with a new title. He became known as Imperator Augustus Caesar, which literally means he who rules the ever-increasing Caesar. His reign of 45 years was considered the golden age of Rome. During his reign, he expanded the empire, but generally maintained a peace, which was known as the, the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. Rome prospered and flourished under his rule, causing many to honor him as a living divinity. His influence on Rome was not only profound during his life, but for hundreds of years after his death. An inscription was found that read, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. That was the world that Jesus was born into. The Roman Empire, the world of Caesar Augustus, the most famous and powerful person in the world. Yet, in Luke's gospel, he was merely the backdrop for the main character. Luke thoroughly researched reading written records, interviewing eyewitnesses to provide an orderly and well-written historical account of the main important events that took place in his lifetime. And Caesar Augustus received one brief reference. Caesar Augustus was a background detail for the main event, which was the birth of Jesus. God didn't send the angel of the Lord to announce the birth of Jesus to the emperor in Rome or even the high priest in Jerusalem. He sent him to shepherds in the hills of Judea. While the world would consider the shepherds to be insignificant people, the Lord saw fit to make known to them this incredible announcement. And what did the angel announce? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was wonderful news and a shot across the bow at Rome. God is the one who decides who is the Lord and Savior of the world. And it was not the man in the palace. It was the baby in the barn. The eyes of the world were on Caesar Augustus not a baby born in a room for animals in the town of Bethlehem. Surely they thought he was the most important person on the earth. Little did they know that somewhere in the empire, a baby boy born to an unknown young woman in a small town in an insignificant region would have immeasurably greater power and influence than Caesar Augustus. One who would actually save people from their greatest danger. Think of the power and influence of Caesar Augustus at that time. Yet who is worshiping him today? Who is spreading the good news of Caesar Augustus? Who is enjoying his Pax Romana? Brothers and sisters, the birth of Jesus reminds us that things are not always as they seem. 
The ones who seem powerful and important in our world may not be that powerful and important in the end. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised to bring to things to bring to nothing things that are. And we see this in the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. God in his wisdom sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom personified, into the world to be born of the Virgin Mary in a room for animals in Bethlehem where he would be laid in a feeding trough and welcomed by shepherds. We are reminded in the birth of Christ that the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of the world. The world offers us all kinds of wisdom. We are continually being fed with the wisdom of the world. Pursue happiness. Be true to yourself. Do what is good and right in your eyes. Be assertive. Make a name for yourself. Get what's yours. Financial security is what will make you happy. We're constantly being bombarded with the wisdom of the world. But God's wisdom points us in a different direction. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we read this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father, the Savior of the world. Who would have thought, who would have expected that he would be born in the way that he was born? Who would have expected the King of kings to humble himself to become a servant? Who would have imagined or envisioned that the Christ, the Lord of all, would suffer a brutal, humiliating shameful death as though he were a criminal crucified to a cross, a spectacle for all to see. This is the wisdom of God. And friends, the coming of Christ confronts us with the choice. We will either choose the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God. And choosing the wisdom of God requires us to be humble, to be seen, to be willing to be seen and viewed as fools in the eyes of the world. But it is better to be regarded as fools in the eyes of the world and wise in the eyes 
of God. Next, we see the sovereignty of God. When Caesar Augustus ordered the world to be registered, the world obeyed. The purpose of the census was ultimately about the collection of taxes, which makes everyone really happy. The census was an unwelcome reminder for the Jews that they lived under the rule of the pagan Roman government. The Jews understood themselves to be God's chosen people who should be subject to no one but God himself. But in the first century, Jews such as Joseph and Mary found themselves subject to a pagan government who regarded their emperor to be the son of a God and savior of the world. In verse 2, the story begins to zoom in as we learn that this was the first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We began with Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of the entire expansive Roman Empire. Then Luke narrowed his focus to the region known as Syria, but he didn't stop there. He continued to narrow his focus on two territories in Syria called Galilee and Judea. And finally, within the uh, territories of Galilee and Judea, Luke calls our attention to the two small towns of Nazareth and Bethlehem. Within the mighty Roman Empire, Nazareth and Bethlehem were insignificant towns that were not highly regarded if they were regarded at all. But it is in these towns where we find the characters of this incredible story. In response to the census, Joseph was forced to travel with his pregnant wife. Joseph and Mary lived in the town of Nazareth but had to travel to Bethlehem to be registered there because that was Joseph's ancestral home. Try to put yourself in their shoes. They were being forced to take a trip that they had not planned. It would not be an easy trip to make. And it certainly was not a convenient time to make the trip. Moreover, the purpose of this trip was ultimately so they could pay more taxes. Probably didn't feel like things were going really well for them. Some of their contemporaries would probably look at them and be like, oh man, this is just tough luck for you. This is not a good situation. I'm sorry you're having to to go through all this and, and deal with this at this time in your life. But when we look closer, we see something else entirely. We see that the events were not at all random. We see that Mary and Joseph were not just in the wrong place at the wrong time. We also begin to see that Caesar Augustus was not quite as powerful as he thought he was. Something much bigger was taking place. Though Luke gave us little detail in his account, the details he did provide pull back the curtain just enough to show so we could see whose hand was at work behind the events of human history. He made a point to note that Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem, which was the city of David. He made the point that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. These were not insignificant details. As a matter of fact, these details point his readers to the reality that the events he recorded were taking place according to the definite plan of God. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God revealed certain things that would take place in accordance with his plan to save his people. David, who was the most famous king of Israel, reigned from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. He came to power a thousand years before Jesus was born. God made him an extraordinary promise. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David an eternal kingdom and that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. 
In Isaiah chapter 9, which was written over 700 years before Jesus was born, God revealed that a child would be born who would sit on the throne of David. And this is why Luke informs us that Joseph, who was the adoptive father of Jesus, was a descendant of David. Jesus, through adoption, was from the line of David. Caesar Augustus became the heir of Julius Caesar through adoption, and Jesus became heir to the throne of David through adoption. In Micah chapter 5, which was also written 700 or more years before Jesus was born, God revealed that the Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Luke was making a point to his readers that what took place in the birth of Christ was the fulfillment of things God promised long ago. The events in Luke 2 were not a random uh, set of random and unfortunate circumstances. No, the God of the universe was working out his plan to save his people just as he had described hundreds of years earlier. Caesar Augustus may have believed he was in control and his power was unrivaled and the world did his bidding. But the truth of the matter is that he was but a pawn in the hand of the one true sovereign king. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, we read, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Caesar Augustus was but a stream in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord was turning him wherever he will wherever he willed. And the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ were not an unfortunate sequence of events. No, they were ordained by God. Behind all the twists and turns, God worked all things according to his plan. And brothers and sisters, I believe we find great comfort in this. Today, more than 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, we can trust that God is continuing to work out his plan to save his people. And I hope we find comfort in this, especially when we um, see in the news everything taking place in the world around us. There is so much chaos. There is so much evil. There is so much brokenness. There are many reasons for us to be distraught But no matter what unexpected events transpire, no matter who is in power, no matter how dicey things seem to get, we know that nothing transpires apart from the sovereign hand of God. In Ephesians 1.11, we read, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did you catch that? You hear those words. We who are in Christ Jesus have obtained an inheritance. It's not a possibility. It is a sure thing. It is a done deal. And moreover, we can be certain 
that God is working all things, not some things, not most things, all things according to the counsel of his will. We don't always understand how or why certain things take place, but even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of pain, we can find comfort and peace knowing that the Lord is sovereign over everything and he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. As followers of Jesus, we are to have great confidence in God, meaning we joyfully trust him even when there seems to be reason for despair or discouragement. We are able to have rest and have peace in the sovereignty of God, in the way that the Lord orchestrated all the events at the birth of Christ is a wonderful reminder of this. So we see the wisdom of God and the sovereignty of God. And finally, we see the glory of God. We see that God, in his infinite wisdom, wields the events of history according to his sovereign power to bring glory to his name. In verse 14, the heavenly host proclaimed, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The proclamation of the heavenly host was in response to what the angel said to the shepherds. Listen again. The angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel delivered a message that was good news of great joy for all the people. What was the good news of great joy for all the people? A Savior who is Christ the Lord was born. The heavenly host was saying, Give God the highest glory, for he has sent a Savior into the world in order to reconcile sinners from all over the earth to himself. One of the most important storylines we see throughout the Bible is that God, who created the universe, is working to gather a people to himself who will live under his benevolent rule, giving him glory and enjoying him forever. But in order to gather people to himself, he must first clear them of their guilt. He must cleanse them from their sin. And he must make them holy, for he is holy. In other words, he must Send a savior. God must punish sin and we are all sinners. Yet God desires to gather sinners to himself. And therefore he had to make a way to save sinners and still punish sin. So he sent God the son, Jesus Christ, to earth to take the punishment for our sins so that everyone who believes in Jesus will be cleared of their guilt, forgiven of their sin, and made holy. God brings glory to his name by saving sinners and gathering them to himself so that we can bring, bring him glory by enjoying him forever in his kingdom. This is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God in his mercy sent a savior into the world to save sinners like you and me so that we can receive the forgiveness of all our sins, be restored to our Heavenly Father and enjoy this relationship with Him now 
and forevermore. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the good news. We hope you will receive and believe. Our hope, our prayer, our desire for you is that you too will recognize your need for a Savior. We are all in need of a Savior. And God has provided that Savior. And his name is Jesus. He is the one whom we celebrate at Christmas. His arrival, his coming into the world. We celebrate and we rejoice this. We rejoice in this because we know that we are in need of this Savior. And God in his mercy and his kindness sent him to save us. You too need a Savior. So we hope and pray that you will believe in him and be saved. At the heart of this storyline in Scripture, the storyline of God bringing glory to his name by gathering a people to himself, is the birth of Jesus. God came to earth to rescue us for his glory. And those of us who are in Christ Jesus now live to the praise of his glorious grace. In the birth of Jesus, God displayed his wisdom and power in bringing glory to his name by sending a Savior, Christ the Lord, into the world. I want to share with you three ways I hope we will apply this text to our own lives. First, rejoice in the birth of Christ. As I said, this is a season for rejoicing and for good reason. We have good reason to celebrate the birth of Christ. He is an incredibly precious gift, the greatest gift that God has given us, a gift we don't deserve, yet he is delighted to give. It is good to give thanks to God for the many good gifts he gives us, and he does give us many good gifts. We can reflect and think of all the blessings that he has given us in our lives. Yet there is no greater gift that he has given us than the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And so it is good for us to rejoice in the coming of Christ. But brothers and sisters, we don't only want to rejoice in the birth of Christ at Christmas. We want to continually rejoice in the coming of Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to rejoice always. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18, we read, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know God's will for your life? That's a good place to start right there. Rejoice always. Of course, that does not mean we don't experience pain and sorrow in this life. We do. But we are to live lives of rejoicing. Why is it? Why is it that we can be those who rejoice always? Because in Christ Jesus, God gives us 
immeasurably better than we deserve. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, he blesses us with every spiritual blessing. He has given us an inheritance. He has promised us a future with him in his glorious kingdom. You cannot lose that and no one can take that from you. And therefore, we rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. How ought we to respond to this text? Rejoice. Rejoice in the birth of Christ. Second, walk in his humble steps. Consider how Christ humbled himself for us. Of course, we see this described so well in that passage in Philippians chapter 2. He did not count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by taking on a human nature. I think it is hard for us to comprehend, to wrap our minds around the degree to which he humbled himself by coming to earth as a baby. It is truly staggering that he would humble himself in that manner, adding to himself a human nature. But that was not it. He did not only come to earth as a baby, he proceeded to live a life as a servant. He didn't become a human being who had all the worldly powers that some human rulers have. No, he lived in humility. He lived a life as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it went further. He became obedient to the point of death, but not an ordinary death. Death on a cross. The cross was the worst way the Romans thought they could put someone to death. This was the way that we can shame someone as much as possible, publicly humiliating them, stripping them down, hanging them up on the cross for all to see. It was an excruciating form of torture, taking hours for a person to die. This was the death that he became obedient to. The Roman government wanted to find the worst way they could kill somebody to send a message and send a warning to others. And this was the death that he subjected himself to. For whose sake? For our sake. And ultimately, for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we will never humble ourselves to the extent that Christ humbled himself for us. As his followers, we are called to walk in his steps, pursuing the path of humility, looking for ways to humble ourselves as we follow our Savior, our King, Christ the Lord. So rejoice in the birth of Christ. Walk in his humble steps. And finally, go and tell. You remember what the shepherds said after the angel appeared to them? 
They said, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has been happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds were joyful that the Lord had made this good news known to them. So they went at once and found Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And in verse 17, we read, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Finally, in verse 20, we read, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds joyfully received the good news and joyfully shared the good news. They made known what was made known to them. And the last picture we see of them is returning home, singing the praise of God, surely on their way to continue to make known this glorious gospel. The gospel is a treasure. And when we understand how precious this treasure is, we will receive it with joy. And then we go and share it with joy. We are incredibly blessed that God has made known to us this gospel, this good news of great joy for all people. He has not left us in darkness. Isn't it wonderful how during the Christmas season, we celebrate, one of the ways we celebrate is with lights. We celebrate with lights in a variety of ways. We see it here in the candles. Christmas Eve service, we traditionally have a, a candle lighting at the end of the service. And it's wonderful to see the, the candle light light up the dark room. And what a reminder that God has not left us in darkness, but he has brought us in the light of Christ. And now we have the wonderful privilege of making it known to the world. He calls on us to go and tell this wonderful good news. I wonder, whom has God placed in your life who has not yet believed in Christ? What friend, what family member, what neighbor, what coworker? Who has God placed in your life who has not yet believed in Christ? What opportunities might the Lord be prompting you to pursue, to make the most of, that you might go and tell someone this good news who desperately needs to hear it? Many people can tell you that Christmas is about the birth of Christ. But very few people actually understand the significance of that. Very few people understand the gospel, the message they need to hear, and how they are to respond, how they must respond by repenting and believing in Christ. And perhaps, perhaps there's someone in your life whose best opportunity to hear this good news is you. Brothers and sisters, let's be those who look for those opportunities to go and tell, to make known to others what has been made known to us. Rejoice in the birth of Christ. Follow in his humble steps. Go and tell. Remember, angel of the Lord said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray.
Holy Father, we thank you and, your, and we praise you for your word. Your word is good. And we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. We thank you how you make so much known to us in this passage of Scripture. How you reveal so much about yourself and about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, we pray that we will delight ourselves in the gospel. We pray that we will be those who rejoice in the birth of Christ. We pray that we will humbly follow in his footsteps. We pray that we will eagerly go and tell others this good news. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.